Well, it's good to be in God's house on the Lord's day. Amen. Good to be among the people of God, singing about Jesus, get to see someone baptized, and we get to hear sermon. I'm going to talk about that today. I'm going to talk about spirit-filled preaching. Uh, I'm in this, uh, this message series right now entitled A Spirit-Filled Life. Last week, we looked at what it meant to be a spirit-filled disciple. Uh, that's, uh, that, that message last week, uh, really, I, I, hope it, uh, I hope it helped you. Uh, it was kind of foundational to a lot of the things that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. I'm going to try to remind you of it as we go forward. If you missed that sermon, uh, you might want to go back and listen to it, uh, and I, uh, I hope you'll do that. So uh, in, in upcoming sermons, uh, we're going to look at what it means to be a spirit-filled church. In fact, that's, that's what I'm going to talk about next week uh, from Acts chapter 2, the end of Acts chapter 2, what it means to be a spirit-filled church. Uh, we're going to look at what spirit-filled prayer looks like. Uh, we're even going to talk about being spirit-filled servants uh, and some other things. But today, I want to talk about spirit-filled preaching. I believe the most important thing that happens on this planet is the preaching of the Bible from pulpits on the Lord's Day of churches of all sorts all over the globe. I literally don't think, and this is not just because this is what I do, I, I literally believe that the preaching of the Bible is the most critically important thing that happens at any time. I mean, I want you to think about the sheer number of sermons that have been preached around the globe since the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples, like we read last week in Acts chapter 2. Just from this pulpit alone, there has been 3,964 Sunday morning sermons, and I haven't done all those, in the past 76 and a half years. I want you to combine all of the preaching that has been done all over the world on the Lord's Day for the past 2,000 years, and imagine with me removing that from Christian history. Imagine all the missionaries that would have never been called, all the people that would have never been saved, all the hearts that would have never been comforted, all of the Christians that would have never been discipled. When it comes to shaping eternity and forming the people of God into who they need to be, there just simply is nothing more important than preaching. And I feel this way, again, not just, not just because I'm the one preaching today and because I'm the one that does the primary preaching in this church. I believe this because I believe God speaks. Do you believe that? Do you believe God speaks? Do you believe God talks to people? I believe that, that God spoke through His Son, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word. I believe that God speaks through his printed word, his written word that we have when we open God's word every day and certainly every Sunday. I believe also that God speaks through his spoken word. It doesn't matter if it happens from a platform. It doesn't matter if it happens on a curbside. It doesn't matter if it takes place over a, a coffee table in a coffee shop or between cubicles with people at work or out on a job site. I believe that God speaks through his, his spoken word. And when we speak the gospel, God speaks. And there's just nothing that we need more uh, as the people of God than that. So in our day, you have access to a lot of preaching. 
Uh, not just what you get whenever you attend worship on Sunday mornings. You have access to a lot of preaching. And I, I take advantage of this in our day of electronics. Uh, man, I, I, love listening, uh, I love listening to the guy at Long Hollow uh, down in Hendersonville. I love also listening to, I, like, I listen to J.D. Greer uh, from Summit Church. I listen to old sermons sometimes by Adrian Rogers. Man, how can you, how can you not like some old Adrian Rogers? Some of you are like, who? I like listening to Steve Gaines from Bellevue. I like listening to a guy, no, some of you have never heard of, his name's Chip Henderson uh, from Pine Lake Church in Brandon, Mississippi. I, I have all types of, types of different types of preachers. Some of them are more hip and cool. Uh, some of them are more old school, stomp, spit and shout, all that types of things. But I believe that preaching is something that we have to be sure we evaluate so that we make sure that the diet that we're receiving is as it, uh, as it needs to be. And so the question that we really ask ourselves, is God the Spirit involved in that sermon? Is God the Spirit uh, involved in that preaching ministry? And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a sermon we're going to look at the text of a sermon that is printed in the text of Scripture in Acts chapter 2. The very first thing that happened after the disciples were filled with the Spirit of God is someone preached. The very first thing that happened whenever God the Spirit came and indwelled permanently His people is someone, in this case Peter, stood up and delivered a sermon that explained God, explained Jesus, explained the gospel uh, to the people around him. And if ever there was a Spirit-filled sermon, certainly it was Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 14, uh, look, look, what, look what the Scripture says. It says that Peter, and, and, and the, Greek, the Greek terms here uh, for address kind of imply like divine speech, like not just giving a speech, but giving what you and I would call a gospel sermon. Peter stood up, and I like the image of the 11, you know, all of the disciples around him, with him, supporting him. And what did he do? He lifted up his voice, and he preached. He said, hey, listen, men of Judea and Jerusalem, give ear to my words. In other words, pay attention. It almost reminds us of what Jesus said. He said, those who have ears to listen, let them hear. Now, usually... On a Sunday morning, I make you stand and we, uh, uh, and we read the full text. So I, I'm not going to really do that because, I mean, Peter's sermon's kind of long. It's, I mean, it just is. I kind of like that it's long, personally. Sometimes people tell me that I'm long-winded. I remember uh, when my wife heard the very first sermon that I ever preached. It was only 10 minutes long. And I said, how was it? And she said, oh, it was so long. I remember whenever I first came here, Lee Bailey, you know, executive pastor, so nice. He would bring me a cup of water, you know, to help with my throat during sermons. Well, just this past week, he was picking on me so much about the length of my sermons that he came walking in with a big water cooler from the kitchen and said, hey, here's this Sunday's water supply. Wow, thanks. Uh, Tommy Redding was picking on me just a few weeks ago about how long my sermons were. And he came up to me and he said, you know, Pastor, he said, your sermon this past Sunday was so invigorating and refreshing. He said, when I woke up, I felt like a new man. 
Uh, one time I was preaching an especially long sermon, and uh, Don Hardcastle, he got so mad at me that he threw a hymn book at me from all the way from the back row, and I saw it coming like a frisbee, and I ducked, and it, uh, it hit our pianist in the head, and uh, as he was falling to the ground, he said, somebody hit me again, I can still hear him preaching. I mean, it's just so long. One time Chuck Pritchard, he paid me a compliment. He said, you know, all your sermons have such happy ending. I'm just, I'm so happy when they end. <laughs> you know what? Even Andy picked on me one day. You know, what, you know what Andy told me this past week? He said, Pastor, he said, if you don't shorten your sermons, I'm going to start putting pizza delivery menus in the bulletin. I mean, true story. Brandon Presley came up to me the other day. This is the best one yet. He came to me the other day. He said, Pastor, he said, your sermons are so long. When I wake up, I need a haircut. So obviously, none of those things are true. Um, I made them up, uh, which is not what pastors are supposed to do with their sermons. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm going to talk to you about four elements of a, a, of a, of a of spirit-filled preaching. I probably could add five length. I mean, Peter's sermon was long. Um, we're going to flip over in a few weeks, and we're going to look, and we're going to see a message that Stephen gave, and it was long. We can't, we can't read it all. We're going to see how, how Paul was before the Sanhedrin. He preached a long sermon. So, hey, all us long-winded preachers, we stand in a good biblical tradition, right? Amen. Y'all are like, I'm hungry. All right, four principles, four elements of spirit-filled preaching. I really hope this encourages you. I hope that you are able to take what I show you here today, and I hope that you're able to evaluate my preaching, uh, any preaching that comes from this pulpit, any preaching that you listen to online. These are some things that you need to look for because these are some things that were so present and so embedded, not just in this sermon from Peter, uh, but from a lot of the sermons we see in Scripture. Number one, uh, spirit-filled preaching is biblical. Spirit-filled preaching is biblical. There is absolutely nothing God the Spirit honors more than when the content of the sermon is the proper explanation of Scripture. If, if a sermon, or just preaching in general, if a sermon does not have the right content then God the Spirit is not going to honor it. He's, he's, he's just not. It doesn't matter how entertaining it is. It doesn't matter how, how good or bad the jokes are. It doesn't matter about the illustrations. None of these things matter if the content is not correct. It doesn't matter the style. Some people, you know, some people like styles of preacher. They get real quiet. You know, when they talk real soft. And other people, you know, they want the preacher to talk so loud that he slobbers all over the front row. And that's, that's style. Style doesn't necessarily have anything to do with whether or not God the Spirit is involved in the sermon. There is nothing more important than having biblical content in the sermon. And that's what we see right here in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 16 through verse 21. Uh, and I'm, again, I'm not going to read all this to you, but we're going to see right here in Acts chapter 16, verse 21. Uh, uh, not, did I say 16? Acts chapter 2, verse 16 through verse 21, the first thing that Peter does is he quotes Scripture. 
And if you look in your copy of God's Word, you can see that there's kind, it's kind of in some brackets. Those are done for the interpreters, for the translators. They're, they're done intentionally to give you an idea that there's a quotation in your Bible that's coming from the Old Testament. And if you look at Peter's sermon, there are three uh, times that there are, there, there are words that are indexed because they are direct quotes from uh, the Old Testament. And so Peter jumps straight out and he says, hey, here, let me, let me tell you what's going on here. And he quotes the book of Joel almost verbatim. Like if you look at what Peter said as translated in Acts chapter 2 and you compare it to what the translators have given you in Joel chapter 2, then you will see almost a verbatim word-for-word quotation. And he explains the baptism of the Holy Spirit by using Scripture. And this is not the only time that he does it. Uh, if, you look, if you look forward a couple of verses later, uh, you'll see that he quotes Psalm chapter 16, verse 8 through 11. He talks about the resurrection of Christ, and he quotes a Psalm of David. And then when he talks about the ascension of Christ, he quotes another Psalm from Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. Spirit-filled preaching... No matter how much you like it or don't like it, no matter how much you enjoy it, no matter how the preacher is dressed or not dressed, doesn't matter how the stage is decorated, none of those things matter. Spirit-filled preaching is thus saith the Lord. That word is used any number of times in the Bible, thus saith the Lord. Some people say it's as many as 2,000. It's probably more like 400 uh, or 500 times that that term is used in Scripture. Pastors do not invent the content for their sermons. They don't come up with something cute to say so that you will like hearing them speak. Pastors should never invent spiritual truth. Your goal is to not find a pastor of a church that you can attend or one that you can watch online that tells you something new and fresh that you've never heard before. The pastor's job is to simply repeat what God has already said in his word. You've heard me say before that the pastor is just should the, whoever is preaching the sermon should just simply be a parrot. They're simply repeating what something that God has already said. And this style of preaching, this type of preaching is a term that we use for it. It's called expository preaching. And listen, if you Google that, if you look up definitions, you're going to find some complicated stuff. Here is the simplest definition that I can possibly give you of expository preaching. And it is exposing God's message through God's Word. God has said something through Jesus, and it's recorded in His written Word. It is there. And what a sermon, what a pastor, what a, what a preacher is supposed to do is they are supposed to open God's Word and show it to you in a way that you can see it and understand it and grasp it. It shouldn't be overly complicated. It shouldn't be overly academic. It should be where it's almost as if the, the, the Scripture itself is being unlocked before your eyes to where you can hold a Bible in your hand And every time a truth claim is made, you can compare it to the text that the pastor had had quoted. 
And um, God's written word was given to us by God the Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says all Scripture is what? It is breathed out by God. But perhaps the best place we can go for this is look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through verse 21. It says, no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation. Like no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but rather men spoke from God. Now listen, this is not talking about me, the preacher, what I'm doing right now. When it says that men spoke from God, it is speaking about the writers of Scripture. The writers of Scripture were divinely carried along by the Holy Spirit. This does not happen when I write a poem or whenever I write in my journal or whenever I write a sermon. I don't get some new special word that you've never heard before. No, we get it from the written word of God because the only place where we can go to find something written that is from God is the 66 books in your Protestant Bible. That's it. If someone brings you a truth that is not in line with the gospel and is not in line with God's word, it is a false truth. And so uh, we have to be real careful here, though. Just because someone quotes the Bible doesn't mean it's biblical. Do you know Satan, when he tempted Jesus, he quoted Scripture? He quoted Scripture to Jesus to try to get him to sin. So it's not just the quoting of Scripture. Listen to this. It's not just quoting Scripture. It is interpreting Scripture that is true preaching. You see, the Bible has to be interpreted. We don't just read it once and we have it forever. We read it over and over and over again. We don't understand a parable of Jesus just because we glance through it. We don't understand a hard saying of Christ just because we read it once. No, it has to be interpreted through us, uh, to, uh, to us. The Holy Spirit helps us as we read it. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes and opens our minds as we hear it preached and explained. But it must be interpreted. And the, here's, the, here's the best way that I can give you to interpret Scripture. Simply stated. This is the easiest way for you to learn how whether or not someone is interpreting Scripture or they quoting Scripture. What it meant equals what it means. You've probably asked yourself that about the Bible before. You're like, well, what does that mean? If you want to know what it means, you need to know what it meant. And in order to know what it meant, you need to say, okay, who, who wrote this? And what did they mean when they wrote it? That's fair, right? If you write something, you want people to interpret your words in the way that you meant them. And then we ask ourselves, the people who originally heard them or the people who originally read them, what did they understand it to mean? And so if you know what the author meant what they wrote, and uh, when they wrote it, and you understand what the original hear- hearers understood it to mean, that's, listen, that's what it still means. It doesn't take on a new meaning as culture wants to change it. What it meant equals what it means. It means the same thing as it did 2,000 years ago. It means the same thing as it did 1,000 years ago. It means the same thing it did 10 seconds ago. And it will never change. This is why you can build your life 
and your faith around the Word of God. And so my suggestion is that you find a pastor and a church and listen, or listen to sermons online, however you get, I mean, you need a local church, however you get your diet of the Word of God, you find someone that takes the meaning of Scripture and interprets it to you. And this is best by verse-by-verse verse preaching, um, but I don't really have time to, to, uh, to really talk about that. But it must be biblical. It must properly interpret Scripture. And when someone reads a Bible verse and then goes off on a spiritual tangent but doesn't explain to you God's message in that verse, it's really not going to do you much spiritually good. So it must be biblical. That's number one. A spirit-filled preaching must be biblical. Number two, spirit-filled preaching is Christ-focused. There is nothing that God, that God the Spirit wants you to hear more than the message of Jesus. Peter's sermon in Acts was about Jesus, period. Stephen's sermon in Acts was about Jesus. Paul's sermon in Acts was about Jesus. Do you know that, do you know that everything written in this Bible is about Jesus? Everything. You cannot divorce anything that you read in Scripture from God's grand redemption to save us in Christ. If we read the Bible and miss Christ, we have absolutely missed everything. A lot of preaching today is very man-focused. It's very, you know, hey, want to make you feel good, want to tell you about you and about man. We, we, don't, need, we don't need to hear about we don't need to hear about us. I know I'm messed up. I want to hear about Jesus and how perfect he is and how he can fix my life. I want to celebrate how he fixed my life 33 years ago. I want to continually bask in the fact that he is continuing to change my life and fix my life through the gospel. His death, burial, and resurrection is just as relevant today in my life as it was 33 years ago when I first got saved. I never outgrow, we never outgrow it. So this is what, uh, this is what Peter did. Peter basically tried to help people to take their minds off of people and place it upon Jesus. Look what he says. He quotes a psalm. Again, I won't read all this to you. Acts chapter 2, verse 25 through verse 28. Um, 25 through verse 28. Basically, this is a direct quote from Psalms chapter 16, verse 18. Actually, I missed the slide. Sorry, back up one slide. So he preaches Jesus in 22, verse 25. Okay, he, he preaches Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. First words out of his mouth after he quotes scripture, Jesus. He quotes scripture from Joel, first thing out of his mouth, Jesus. And what does he say about Jesus? He says, man, he did some incredible things, uh, signs and wonders, because he was God, right? And then all of this was according to a grand plan of redemption that God has been unfolding. He talked about the plan and foreknowledge of God. He talked about his death, his crucifixion, and then he talked about his resurrection. And then what did he do? He quoted more scripture. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse, that's the next slide, verse 25 through verse 28. This is 
a direct quote that Peter uses in his sermon from Psalm chapter 16. He quotes this to talk about the resurrection of Christ, all right? And this is a Psalm of David. This is what David said in, uh, in Psalm, Psalm chapter 16. And he talks about, hey, you're not gonna abandon me in the grave. Uh, my body's not gonna see corruption. I'm gonna have gladness in your presence. And then what does Peter do? He explains how these words of David in Psalm 16 are about Jesus. Acts chapter 29, verse 33. Uh, 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 excuse me, Acts chapter, sorry, I'm getting my references confused. Acts chapter 2, verse 29 through verse 33. Look what he says. He says, listen, David's dead. His body's still in the grave. And his remains are still among us even to this day. So David wasn't talking about David. David was really talking about Jesus. And he was talking about the resurrection of Christ. And then he does it again whenever he talks about the ascension. And I don't think I, I don't have those verses for you today, but they're found in verse 34 and verse 35. He talks about, he quotes another Psalm of David and again says, it's not about David. David's not the point. The point is Christ. You see, you're not trying to be like David. You're not trying to go out and slay giants. That's not, I mean, every time I hear... Every time I hear that sometimes, sorry, rabbit trail, I hear somebody talk about David and Goliath, and you need to go be David, and you need to go, and you need to defeat the giants that are in your life. No, Jesus did that. I'm scared Israel, man. I'm, I tremble whenever I see the giant walk in, right? The giant of, of my sin, and I, 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 need save, I need someone else. I can't save myself. See, everything is about Jesus. There's nothing Christian to talk about except Jesus. And if it's not about Jesus, is it really Christian? It's just not a Christian message if it's not about Christ. I mean, we sing about Jesus, we pray to Jesus, we preach Jesus. And I know what you're thinking, well, hold on now, that's all great. What about my personal problems? I mean, I got issues, I got problems, I got things going on in my life. You know, what, 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 what about that? I want to show you some of these topics that are found in the epistles. All right, and epistles, uh, those are not the wives of apostles. Uh, those are small books. <laughs> Such a bad joke. Those are small books that are found in the New Testament. Right, I just cherry-picked some out. I, ch I cherry-picked some of these topics. I'm not going to read them all to you, but I bet some of you could say, hey, I'm, I'm, I've got this thing, I've got spiritual warfare going on. Some of you say, man, my marriage, I, I, I'm struggling. Uh, some of you say, this spiritual gift thing, it really has me all tangled up. Or no, the use of my words, that's a biggie for me. Or I'm suffering, or I have a bad medical diagnosis, or my home life is not good. I mean, you, you, you see all these you see all these topics up there. I bet you every single one of you could point to one. And this is just a few of the problems that we face that are addressed in the New Testament. I bet every single one of you could point to at least one of these things and say, that's where I'm at right now. If you show up to church expecting someone to give you a solution to these problems other than the gospel. You are missing Christ. He is the solution of all of these things. And listen, these epistles were written to Christians. 
they weren't written to lost people who needed to get saved so that they could so that they could then fix these problems. These are Christian people that have these problems, and the way that they are addressed in the Bible is from the use of the gospel. A Christless sermon is empty, powerless, meaningless, pointless, and only a Christless person is interested in Christless teaching. It has to be biblical. It has to be Christ-centered. And number three, it's convicting. Spirit-filled preaching is convicting. Look what happened when Peter explained. He opened up God's Word. He opened it up to them. He interpreted it for them, and he, he showed them Jesus and what happened. The Bible says that when they, when they heard it, they were, just, oh, they, were just, they were just cut to the heart. You ever, been, you ever been cut by a sermon? You ever been cut by a message? If you haven't, there's probably something wrong. You might not have eyes to see and ears to hear. You might not really understand the state that you're in. You know you're a sinner, right? I mean, I know some people don't like to hear that, but you are. You're a sinner. Now listen, I hope that when you listen to sermons that there will be times of refreshing, there will be times of joy, there will be times of comfort, there will be times of encouragement, and all of those are good and great and wonderful. But at some point, because of our sinful state of being, even after we become Christians, because of our sinful state of being, there's going to be the things that God wants to address in your life. And listen, when you watch that guy on TV and he tells you how great you are, would you please turn him off? Just turn him off? There's only, there's only one person that we need to be celebrating, and it's not us. We need to be celebrating Jesus. Spirit-filled preaching is not, made, is not meant to make you feel good about yourself. It's meant to help you to give up on yourself and place your faith in Christ in every situation of life that you might find yourself. Here's what, here's what the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 4.12. Look what he says. He says the Word of God. When you see that in Scripture, the Word of God in the New Testament is often the spoken Word of God, the sharing of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, but also the written Word of God. But It can mean either or. But the Word of God is what? It's living and active. What does it do? Man, it's sharp. It cuts, it pierces, it discerns things about us that we ourselves might not be able to see. I mean, we might not be able to fully understand the position that we're in or how sinful we are, how things are holding us back. We need a diagnosis for someone to say, hey, here's some things that are wrong with me. And that's what the Word of God does when it's properly interpreted to us and Christ is preached, we see Him in His perfection. Then we begin to see our imperfections and we start to, we start to feel that conviction of the Spirit. And there's two ways to understand conviction. I'll go through this quickly because I've talked about these before. One is that godly grief, that guilt before God over sin, okay, we feel that weight in that heaviness, that guilt over him over sin. And number two, this godly resolve. Now listen, not meanness. I want you to love the Bible, but I don't want you to be mad about it, okay? I want you to love Jesus, but I don't want you to be mad about it. 
All right, I want you to stand on the truth, but I don't want you to be frustrated and mad and stomp, spit, and shout. The Bible says give a, give a gentle answer to, to those uh, who are ready to ask us for the hope that we have. But it's still a resolve like stone. It's a steel resolve that we have. This is what God the Spirit does inside of us. When we see our sin and we have that grief, we have this determination. It's like the Lord told me to do something. I didn't do it, but by golly, I'm doing it now. Uh, the Lord convicted me to stop doing something, and I didn't, but now I'm repenting, and I am turn, I'm going to do what he says. It is a godly resolve, a godly grief, and the best way to go for this, I you know, I really, really and truly, I need to preach a sermon just on this text at some point, uh, but it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we see, we see both of these. It talks about this godly grief, and it produces something, okay? This godly grief, it produces repentance, but it leads to this, that, that resolve, that earnestness, that indignation, that zeal. That's what the Spirit does. And that's one of the ways that you can recognize the results of the activity of the Spirit in your life. And when you hear, and it's not just, not just through preaching, but, uh, but we're talking about preaching today, but when you hear Spirit-filled preaching, it should do something inside of you that leads you to have a measure of conviction, guilt, or a measure of resolve and determination, and should always lead you to a response, which is the fourth thing that I want to mention to you this morning uh, as I close. Uh, Spirit-filled preaching calls for response. It calls for response. It's, it's just not possible to, to have the Bible interpreted to you, and then you see the beauty of Christ uh, through the message that is presented, and then you see the flaws and the sins that you have in your own life, and the Lord give you a resolve that you're going to walk with Jesus and embrace a, a life of discipleship. It's impossible for those things to happen, and then for you to not do anything in response. This is why we have, at the end of every worship service, we have both a time of response and an invitation. When I ask you to stand, bow your heads and close your eyes, I ask you to pray, I ask you to respond in some type of way. In some type of way, I ask you, oh, what do you need to do with this message? How is God called? Whatever. Or whatever it might be for on that particular day. And we say, hey, if you need to talk, we invite you to come and, uh, and to, to the next steps area. We call for response. This, this, this is an important part that sometimes uh, is missed. A sermon is not just for information. It's not just, it's not just academic knowledge that is presented to you. you. Here's a better way of saying it. You don't come to church to learn. You come to church to worship. And how do you worship? The Bible tells us. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Worship is a lifestyle. It's an act of showing up and seeing Christ in His beauty and our sinfulness and walking in repentance. It's, it's, a, it's an act that we do together, but it's also a lifestyle of living for God. You don't show up to church to learn. You show up to, you gather with God's people, with the congregation, so that you might worship, so that you might be changed, so that you might live as a disciple. And what does Peter say? He says, repent. Such a big word. 
man, that word has just been all over me. I just, I just can't understand people preaching the Bible and salvation and not preaching repentance. And I won't, you know, repentance is I'm going this way, I'm going to turn and go that way. That's what Peter says, repent. He says you have to turn, uh, to turn from your sin, and it's an ongoing act, not just a one-time action, but an ongoing action. And then he says, uh, he says you also need to be baptized. Now, some people will use this scripture to say that Peter is saying you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Obviously, I don't agree with that position. But I cannot fathom someone who loves Jesus and has been saved, but they don't want to publicly pledge allegiance to Jesus through water baptism. I, 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 I can't understand anybody that has the Spirit of God that doesn't want to take that initial step of obedience because here's, baptism, baptism is your first step of obedience. This should be the very first act of obedience that you take. And if, if you can't get into the baptistry and obey the Lord in front of all God's people who are going to cheer for you and love you for your, your, uh, your baptism, you are not going to be obedient out in the world where people are going to hate you for being obedient to Christ. This is your first baby step to be baptized, to say, I pledge allegiance to Jesus. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. And I want everyone to know and rejoice in that fact. And then the way that Peter ends his sermon, I love this. He, he, he brings it back around to talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said, hey, repent, be baptized, and uh, look to the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And guess what? You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit too. He started off by saying, these people that you see here that have been baptized with the Spirit, they're not drunk. Let me explain it to you. He used God's Word. He interpreted it to them. He preached Jesus. They were cut to the heart. And he said, hey, listen, you call on Jesus. If you will save yourselves, if you will receive His Word, you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit also. And I love who he says it's for. He's this, he says it's for you. He says it's for your children. And he says it's for those who are far off. Anybody far away from the Lord today? Anybody just feel like you were just way, way far away from the Lord? Like you really even don't even want to be here. I mean, you just, you were far away from God. How many of you know somebody like that? You know somebody you'd say, they would never set, door, set, set, set foot in the doors of the church. The Bible says, Peter says, the Spirit of God says, this is for them. The gift of the Spirit is for them. It says it's for everyone. Everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. 3,000 people got saved that day. That was a good day. That was a good day. Let me tell you something. You can preach. You can preach. I'm not suggesting that maybe you want to stand up on a platform in front of a gathered congregation and preach a sermon that you've been preparing all week, but you can preach. You can preach to your family members. You can preach to your friends and your coworkers. We can just call it sharing the gospel. Same thing. Anybody can preach. Anybody, it, 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 listen, everybody 
is called to preach when it comes to sharing the gospel. Everybody is called to verbally, listen, you can do that. You can slide your chair over to the next cubicle at work. You can open your Bible. You can, you can interpret the words of Scripture. You can show them Christ through the truth in that Scripture. You can help guide them through a sense of conviction. You can call them to a response to baptism and to repentance. You can do that. and You don't need my permission to do it. You don't need a pulpit to do it. You don't need a position to do it. You, you need neither pulpit, position, nor permission. You are authorized by Scripture to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. I wonder if there's someone that you can think about right now that needs a sermon, and not from me, but from you. Someone right now that you would say, they desperately need to hear the gospel. Okay, let's stand together. Let's all stand together. Here's the way, if you're a Christian today, here's the way that I want you to respond today. I want you to make a commitment, number one, that you're going to start looking for and craving spirit-filled preaching from me or from whomever, from wherever you get it from, that it would be an exposition of Scripture, a proper interpretation of the Bible, that it would be Christ-centered, that you would show up for church saying, that's what I want. Tell me more about Jesus. That you would be open to the conviction of the Spirit in your life, that you would respond to God. Would you, would you make those commitments today? So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're a Christian here today, I want you to, I want you to make that commitment. I want you to be...